0: Hear my words and bear witness to my vow Night gathers and now my watch begins It shall not end until my death I shall take no
2: wife, hold no lands, father no children
0: I shall wear no crowns and win no glory I shall live and die at my post I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards
2: the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the Night's Watch. For this night
0: and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones, an unofficial podcast with the HBO series Game of Thrones. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson.
2: And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson.
0: Each week on this podcast, we like to break down the latest episode of Game of Thrones, hand out some awards, chew it over, discuss what's going on. We are at the midway point through Season 8, which means we will be discussing everything up through Season 8, Episode 4, The Last of the Starks, written by... D.B. Weiss, and David Benioff, and directed by David Nutter. Uh, we will not be spoiling anything that happens after that. Um, we are just here to talk about this supersized third to last episode of Game of Thrones. Um, usually, I do a fifteen-word recap. A lot happened in this episode, um, so I don't know. I don't. I don't have a fifteen-word recap. Richard, do you have like? Anything anything to sum up this episode for me?
2: Uh yeah, the word I texted you last night, blar.
0: Oh no. <laughs> yeah, we weren't huge fans of this episode and I know like last week when I said some stuff about um the Dothraki uh at the Battle of Winterfell. I got a lot of bad reviews on all of my podcasts across the iTunes spectrum for just one of my takes last week this this week I'm going to be even a little bit more critical so uh just to warn you that's where we are it's our headspace right now we'll find some good to mix in with the bad but um if you're here for like an uh unfettered praise of this episode this we are not the critics for you this week so um, alright. So we're going to start by handing out some awards before we get into discussion of the episode. I will start with my obvious MVP of the episode, which I think is David Nutter, who's the director. This is the last episode of Game of Thrones David Nutter will ever direct. And I really, um, in our countdown that we did, grew to have a really strong appreciation for David Nutter, uh, what he excels at and what I think really works in this episode. Um, are really intimate emotional beats. And I, like, I've heard, I watched the making up for this episode. Um, uh, one moment that I really liked, uh, in this episode is you get Sansa, um, sort of crying over Theon on the funeral pyre. And I thought Sophie Turner did an amazing job with that shot. Um, and I was watching the making of and she was like, Oh yeah, David Nutter before that take walked up to me and said all this devastating stuff. And she said what he said. And it was sort of similar to what he said to get John Bradley to give that great crying performance in the first episode of the season. And I was like, man, David Nutter just knows how to saunter up and make an actor weep right on cue. So, um, you know, all for all that intimate, like, party scene at Winterfell one-on-one sort of stuff i think he did um a really good job so my obvious mvp is david nutter who do you have for an obvious mvp richard
2: well i agree with you on nutter i think it's a very well-directed episode um but my obvious mvp is a begrudging obvious mvp and i think it's euron Greyjoy Mm. because like he did a big bad thing and apparently fooled some of the greatest you know, strategic masterminds on the continent, you know, pretty simply, uh, and took down a big old dragon. So I'd have to, you know, I don't like him, but I'm going to give it to him anyway.
0: By hiding behind a rock. Yeah. Um, we can't give it to his dentist because I don't know if you clocked that <laughs> close up of his teeth, but yeah, in terms of people who did consequential. Things in this episode, it's hard to argue with your own Greyjoy. Um, alright, then we're gonna do a sneaky MVP, and, uh, this one I'm going to give to Torment, who I don't give a lot of credit to generally. Um, but he, and there's some stuff he does in this episode that I don't like, but the fact that he is ready to rehome Ghost, who has been treated <laughs> so poorly in the North, um, you know makes me love him he's gonna i know that he's gonna be way better to ghost than john ever was so um i will i will give it to you to torment for a well-timed adoption of a pet uh richard richard who's your sneaky mvp
2: well yeah torment also has one really great eyebrow raise in this episode yeah that I, that I really liked um but my sneaky mvp is he's a he's a classic of mine but he did some sneaky stuff Briefly in this episode, I'm going to give it to my boy Kybern.
0: Mm, yeah, it was good. Str-
2: strutting out of that castle, that was a huge position of prominence for him to take. I mean, I know he's now hand of the queen, but like, you know, he's really worked his way up in the world in King's Landing, landing while staying staying true to who he is, which is a weird, slithery, snake, <laughs> snaky creep.
0: Yeah, creepy as ever. A nice. He, it wasn't like exactly a deep V, but he's just shown a lot of collarbone in his robe, just like out there and exposed on that field there. So
2: I'm going to spoil it and say that he's my best dress of the week too.
0: Oh, nice. All right uh well we can just flip right down to that and i will give my best rest who is um brand for like kind of a similar look uh, a robe and outside look kind of thing you know mm-hmm. when she goes out to stop jamie lannister for making a stupid mistake uh she's wearing this robe which might be like i don't know the first kind of terry cloth robe ish we've ever seen on game of thrones and it looks pretty great um all right. And then, uh, we also want to do our best quote from the episode. Richard, do you want to go first?
2: Yep. Well, speaking of, uh, our friend Torment, I'm going to say, which one of you cowards shit in my pants? <laughs> which is such a good sort of deliberate cell phone. The joke being I shit in my pants, but I'm going to blame it on somebody else.
0: Yeah. There's I a, I just liked it. <laughs> there's a similarish, not same joke in Endgame, but like it's a, it's a really, it's a solid. It's a really good joke, well delivered. Um, my line is not so much, my quote is not so much like for the words themselves, but um, how hilariously quickly they're undone, which is, uh, when Jon Snow is telling his his big secret to his siblings, he extracts, you know, their word that they won't share the news, and <laughs> Arya goes like bright and clear, like I promise, and Sansa goes. I promise. Like, she, <laughs> she kind of mumbles it. Uh, we find out why, because she gives up that secret right away. Ned Stark kept that secret for, like, 18 years. Uh, and says I couldn't keep it for a scene. So good job, girl. All right. Um, and then we're going to do a ship. My ship here, which is this, you know, we usually pick, like, two people that we're either rooting for romantically or, like, rooting for them in a, a inanimate object to get together or something like that. I, um, Usually try to go like quasi-romantic in this, but I'm gonna go, I got really mad, um, at Tyrion Lannister in this episode. Not throughout the episode, but briefly when they're playing that drinking game and he says that virgin comment to Bran and I got very, very mad uh, especially as he just like kept going. And in that moment I was like, where's Brown with the crossbow to stop this. <laughs> so, uh, at least for a part of this episode, I was shipping, uh, Tyrion in that crossbow bronze, <laughs> uh, Richard, who are you shipping in this episode?
2: Uh, I'm shipping someone who is not in the episode. I'm shipping Yara Greyjoy, and just stay in the hell out of this. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, girl, they are not treating women very well in this episode. Just stay on the Iron Islands, hold your hold your own, and just don't get involved with this mess any further than you already have.
0: Right, that's a great point um all right so yara and the iron islands Tyrion and a crossbow so that's where our heads are heads, um, mm-hmm. in this episode so maybe we could kick off by um i'm gonna play a thought experiment with you um because i don't i mean i, I think it's fair to say that we have issues this episode i don't know that it's fun for us to sit here and just like shit on an episode for no. an entire podcast so we're gonna like try to calibrate like some things we like some things we don't like you don't really need to hear us like just you know dunking on game of thrones for a whole podcast episode but richard let's start with like what is the one thing that like really rubbed you the wrong way in this episode
2: well given that we only have two episodes left now Mm -hmm. i was like i really can't believe this has become a narrative about men trying to figure out what to do with crazy women
0: yeah yeah uh, this idea of like Mad Queen Daenerys, Mad Queen Cersei, uh, temperate, reasonable ruler, John Snow.
2: hmm.
0: My fingers just yeah. f-
2: felt, which has never felt that, I mean, like, it, it's, it's no shade to Kid Harrington or anything, but it's just like, John has never been that compelling of a leader. And there was even a line in this episode where there was it, was it Varys who was like, people are drawn to him? Or I mean, maybe Tyrion said it, but I think it was Varys, but like, and it's like, but why exactly? Like, I understand he has this lineage or this supposed lineage. And, every, and he's, you know, he, he, he led the night's nice watch for a long time and has had some you know success in that. But like, I don't know when you just have these two much more commanding, I guess they had this kind of intratextual conversation about like, yeah, people prefer a man. So maybe that was the show commenting on its own dynamic, but I don't think it then needed to play that dynamic out. So literally, I guess.
0: I, I'm really hoping that the show is headed towards a, a an overall commentary on this. Mm-hmm. Um, that is my hope. If it's not, I, I don't even know what to tell you. And based on the evidence of this episode, I don't even know what to tell you. But that being said, I think what they're really invested in, um, are head fakes this season. And so, mm-hmm. uh, I'm hoping it's sort of the point. <laughs> um, you know, the, you know, Tyrion says something, or, or I think it's Varys says something like, um, has it, has it ever occurred to you that, um, a man who doesn't want the job is the perfect man for the job or something like that. It was just like, it, it seemed so pointed. It seemed like they they laid it on so thick, especially that sequence in the party when Tormund's like praising Jon for riding a dragon. Uh, he's a madman. He's a king. When like Daenerys just saved Tormund on a dragon back at the end of season seven, how quickly they forget. So like, I feel like they're trying to make that comment. Yeah. But I don't know how to reconcile it with the arc they seem to be pushing Daenerys on. So I'll just be very curious to see how that all pans out
2: um yeah yeah and like you know you saw this kind of inequity you know in in other parts of the of the episode where you have brienne all of a sudden becoming the weeping you know girlfriend saying don't go to war you know which just felt very out of character for her and then you have sansa in this bizarre scene with the hound like sort of saying like that good that she was so brutalized by ramsay because it turned her not into a little bird and i was like i don't know if that psychology tracks at all you know like i don't know i just like i just felt that this episode for the stuff that they were deliberately trying to comment on there was other stuff that felt like accidental you know kind of marginalization or, or just sort of mischaracterization of female characters that we've now invested a lot of time in and then to have the episode end the way it did with Miss Andy dying, who was not only one of the women characters, but also one of the very, very few people of color on the show. It was just like, ugh, really guys, you know, after all of this, this is where we're going to go with two episodes left. They could totally re- reverse course and, and fix things. But like, I don't know. I did not feel um, confident after the end of that hour and 20 minutes.
0: Yeah, someone um someone put it really well, um one of my... Podcast listeners said something like, um, I liked the scene between hound, H- the hound and Sansa as like an in-universe moment. It felt like actually fairly true to who those characters are as they are now. Mm-hmm. As a scene written by an all-male writing staff in 2017, 2018, uh, it gave me a lot of pause, basically. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I, I was totally. like, thank you yeah. for articulating my issue because like, I don't think I can watch that scene and say, I don't think the sense as she exists in the show or the hound as he exists in the show would say either of those things, because I don't know, uh, I, I it, it didn't feel that off to me, but mm-hmm. it made me so very uncomfortable, um, and that, you know, for her to essentially, um, as our colleague Sonia Soraya put on Twitter, like, think her rapist i mean you know it's just sort of like mm-hmm. it's and i've never been comfortable with aria uh, with sansa feeding ramsey to the hounds as like a healthy choice for her to have made that felt right. like a further um damaging choice to have made and i don't think the show has ever grappled with that sansa is uh distrustful so it's not like she's like Got no, um, you know, repercussions from, from, but there was just like a couple other, like there was the comment from, um, Daenerys too, where she's like, your sister isn't the little girl you grew up with, not after everything that's happened to her, not, not what, uh, not after what they've done to her. Which was another, like, sort of pointed comment about Sansa sexual assault that I just, um, and I was like, how far and wide has the news of Sansa sexual assault spread? Like, I mean, I guess right. Ramsey put in a letter, but it was just uncomfortable for me to have these other, to talk about it. Um and then yeah and then to lay my 2019 uh social issues over the episode myself I will say the moment that really struck me was um the execution of Miss Sandy. And it's not that uh you know we're in the end game now characters are going to die a bunch of people were complaining last week that um not enough people died at the battle of Winterfell I wasn't really one of them but people were complaining about that and so um, you know, it seems silly to com- then complain about <laughs> a character dying, but like, I've been trying to figure out whether or not I think what happened to Massandi was, was fridging, and fridging, if you're unfamiliar, listening and unfamiliar, is, um, you know, it's, it's a comic book trope for, but that extends to a lot of other, um, pop culture items, and it, uh, you know, it's basically the, Hurting of or killing of an underdeveloped woman character in order to motivate, like, the man in her life. And then, you know, what's certainly true is that Masandi dies here and then, um, the camera pulls quickly to Grey Worm's anguished face. So that's, that's a true thing that happens. Um, but you know, it, it also enrages Daenerys. So it's a, it's a twofer, right? With Masandi, right? It's a, she is the character that, that, the writers identified, correctly identified as the, the most poignant pain point for these two characters versus like if they kept Jora alive and assassinated Jora, it really would have just hurt Daenerys. Mm. Um, I think what makes me uncomfortable is the fact that she's the only woman of color on the show. And like when you have only one of anything, they then take on the burden of representation of an entire what have you. Um mm-hmm. I wrote about this last night. We've got some we're gonna have some other people write about it for Vanity Fair because who cares what me, a white lady, has to say about this really. But like, um yeah, I mean I, I don't know it's fridging. I just think that it it feels like you have to when you when you have been as um inconsiderate as Game of Thrones has been um in terms of casting a wide net um as to what people look like in your cast then you have to be very careful what you do (laughs) with your two Mm -hmm. characters of color gray worm and miss andy so there's just one left you know
2: yeah and i think that the miss andy's death would have resonated more i maybe sat a little bit better um if she'd gotten more to do do you know, in the in the kind of lead up to her death, you know, because like, we know what it meant, because she's been with the show for so long. And it's been kind of one of the very few constants in Danny's life. And so yeah, that emotional tension, and also for Grey Worm was certainly there. But it was also just like, just for the actress, Natalie Emanuel, and for the kind of honor of the character, if she had had some big moments in the past few episodes, you know, so we're like, really kind of like, well, at least she went out you know, fighting or whatever, you know, I, but I just, it just felt so like, Oh, right. Her, you know, bring bring her up to the ramparts and cut her head off, you know, cause that, that'll, that'll do something, you know, it just felt a little bit inconsiderate, I guess. Um,
0: I did like, which, I I did like how she went out. I mean, Oh yeah. As a lot of people yeah. pointed out, she could have grabbed Cersei and just thrown herself from the ramparts and been done with it. Uh, when she was just standing right at the end with, with Cersei's hand on her arm. Um, but I did like the whole Jacaris, and I thought her performance and her final moments good. Um, I don't know. It's just, uh, I, I, I was looking back through sort of the, the Masandi character and how it's been developed. This is obviously like, so Masandi was expanded from the show in the first place, uh, from the books in the first place, right? She's like an 11 year old child in the books. She's, she's Daenerys's translator and she's one of several women sort of in Daenerys' retinue. Uh, they boiled that all down, uh, you know, so then once again, she's the only one. She's Daenerys' only female friends. Mm-hmm. Um and she's in a servile position at that. She does, she challenges Daenerys a little bit, but not much. And so it's always been a kind of like, like they called her Daenerys' best friend, but I'm like, is she really her best friend? Like she has this line in season seven where she's like, I'm here because I chose to be, she's the queen. We chose all of us who came to Essos. Like she wouldn't have made us come. We chose to come. So they like wrote that leg, so consent idea into Miss Missandei in season seven. But like, she's, there haven't been a lot of conversations between Daenerys and Missandei that hasn't been about the men they're trying to sleep with. I don't, I didn't run the, their whole interaction through the Bechdel test, but it's like pretty close. The most we got of Grey Worm and Missandei sort of as independent of their orbit of Daenerys is the season six plot when they're left behind Marine with Tyrion and they're trying to like tell him, Hey, maybe don't, uh, consider the slave masters this way. We've been slaves. We know what we're talking about. Um, and that was a plot that, uh, you know, suffered a bit from some of George R. R. Martin's issues. But um, so, but I, I say, I see what the writers are trying to do there. And I do value that. And I think they have tried in some ways to uh, change or expand the very white world that George R. R. Martin presented to them. That being said, if you look at the casting for the long night, the prequel that's coming up by Jane Goldman, she has off the, off like from the jump, cast a bunch of people of color and women of color in leading roles. And it's just a different attitude. Yeah. It's a different time in in the history of this continent, but it's also just like, you know, and she's not coming off of source material so she can kind of like do whatever she wants, but like, it's a different, it's a different attitude. And I feel like if they cast Game of Thrones now in 2019, I don't think they would have cast it so white, you know, I don't think so. So, um, mm-hmm.
2: you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, that all makes sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really tricky kind of thing to unpack, you know, and I think that people are coming at the show from different perspectives and, and, and obviously bringing, you know, myself included, like our own sort of stuff into the experience of watching this globally you watch show. So the way that we saw the episode, I'm sure people saw it other people saw completely differently. So again, we're not trying to sort of like say episode bad, but like I just didn't have a great reaction to it. That said, I was glad that you picked out Nutter to be your your obvious MVP because it's a well directed episode, and yeah. even even the the moment with Miss Andy is very tense. And even you're like, well, why wouldn't they just shoot their ballistas at these people or whatever? Like, yes, you could unpack or sort of pick at the logic of it a lot, but like it felt momentous. You know, it felt big as did a lot of the scenes at Winterfell before they left. And there was genuine emotion in the episode. Like I wasn't by any means bored. It was just sort of actually when I thought about it after the fact, I was like, huh, that kind of sat weird or whatever. So the show is still creatively running at an incredibly high level. Um, and again, I think I said this last week, like at a certain point, you just have to kind of be like, okay, this is the show that they are going to, this is the one they wanted to make. And there's that the tricky thing between grafting, appreciating what has been shown to you and trying not to have it be too affected by what you want it to be. Because the the latter of those, that's that's a sort of that's a very hard way to watch things. Yeah. You know, and we're we, going to be unhappy a lot.
0: We've talked about that before. Absolutely. In terms of just like just because something isn't unspooling the way that you thought it might, that doesn't make it bad. Right. And mm-hmm. um I'll give two maybe two examples of this or I'll just say this. The party scene, the banquet in Winterfell, I actually like, you know, maybe some of the text of this and or since, uh, conversation aside, I thought that was like masterfully done, honestly. And like, when I watched the behind the scenes, you you don't think of it like these scenes of people talking in room, you don't think of the technical difficulty of it, but like, it's a very close crowded room. There's, if you rewatch that scene, which is a long scene, um, there's a lot of interesting continuity things that they do. I mean, first of all, uh, if you've been looking on Twitter, you will know already that a Starbucks cup snuck its way into that scene, uh, which I feel bad for them for that. You but mean Starbucks Yeah, the Starbucks coffee was sitting in front of Daenerys at one point, and I feel bad for them that that happened, because it doesn't diminish what else they did. Okay, we want to talk about uh, people's complaints about how the battle scene was lit last week. Um The lighting in that scene, which is like from all the candles in the room and the light boxes that they built sort of underneath the candles to make sure that you could see everyone and everything and every expression is beautiful. Really, really good. David Franco is the DP on this episode. He did a great job with that. And then they, what they fed into it is you've got these little, you know, you've got these little groupings, right? You've got the like Tyrion pod brand Jamie grouping. You've got John and the wildlings. You've got all this sort of stuff. And what they did, if you rewatch it is they sort of, Fed continuity through it by using like, I don't know, serving girls walking through with tankers of wine and you follow her from one vignette to another or something like that. Yeah. And I think that's really like clever and gives you a sense of the room and a sense of time passing and all that sort of stuff. And then I yeah. think everyone's, sorry, last thing. I think everyone's, yeah, no, cool. I think everyone's performance is really good. David Nutter also directed this fire, the fireside chat that we liked in episode two. Um, I learned in the behind the scenes episode that he, um, his scenes take forever because he does so much coverage, which is like he shoots you know, pod for an entire scene or whatever. But then he has all these reaction shots to work with. And and then you see that again in this scene where you see all these glances and all the subtext, you know, sort of bubbling under the dialogue. Sorry, what were you gonna say?
2: You know, it's so textured, you're right. Like all 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 the kind of like it's a it's a it's a really masterful bit of juggling and editing, you know. Um, that you really get a sense of the space and who's, who is where in the room and who's watching who and everyone looking so beautiful and that, that's that, that, that sort of Rembrandt-y candlelight. Yeah. Um, that's all extraordinary. And I think, you know, on a bigger level, like, I had, after last week, I was like, well, okay, so, you know, where do we go from here? Someone wanted us to quote the Buffy musical. Like, so <laughs> that's me doing that. But like, you know, like the magic thing is over. And so is the show going to feel, are the stakes going to feel, as high i gotta say I, I was totally wrong i mean i i think that it, you know aside from some missteps um throughout the episode this week like i really felt like oh yeah this is a, a really smart decision to have them now they're like okay so that big thing is gone now we have yeah. to just grapple with each other yeah you know? and like that kind of sucks even more like it's just it's more like it's it's much more tethered in emotion beyond just like abject fear you know um and 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 that that sense of both accomplishment, but also of loss, the, the sort of weight of like, okay, now life turns on. It it, 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 connected into that sort of thing that I've been talking about since we first started talking with the show, which is that in the books, there's this real, really palpable, heavy sense of history. And it's hard for a TV show to, that has to be set in the present day to kind of, or in the present tense anyway, to, um, to tap into that. But this kind of thing did where it was just like, okay, so now it's just the people like, just, prodding along you know have to do this you know and this will be spoken about in you know a thousand years they'll say oh you know the, the night king was defeated they're not going to talk about what happened immediately after you know right um and so here we are kind of seeing that like so i really appreciated that and i think that like with some some tweaks for the next two episodes or maybe some resolves that i don't see coming like there could still be a really powerful finish delivered uh and then i'm hoping for that
0: yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I love this line that Tyrion has when he's talking to Davos and this party scene where he's like, you know, basically, we have to deal with us now, <laughs> as he's, like, warily eyeballing Daenerys and Jon and Sansa. Um, and so, you know, and Davos, because Davos is basically like, where'd the Lord of Light go after all this? What the hell? Like, basically echoing the whole, like, mm-hmm. what the hell, magic gone? Um, You know, and we drop another dragon in this episode, but we dropped a dragon and it really felt like kind of nothing. I, I, I don't know that, like, Rhaegal just dropped I don't understand the point of Jon Snow learning to ride a dragon, like, in episode one, riding it Ineffectively, in episode three, and then the dragon's dead in episode four. And this is all speaks to this accelerated, um, timeline that they're on. Because my other example of something that I didn't like in this episode, um, that actually I think I can divorce from my, like, sort of, uh, sentimental feelings about it, uh, is the Bran and Jamie goodbye. It's not that I don't understand this as a character arc for Jamie because I do. I, and I actually kind of like it. I have, um, Nicolette Costa Waldo actually, like, basically told me this was gonna happen last summer when I interviewed him. And, uh, he was like, well, don't be surprised if Jamie goes back to Cersei. I'm just saying, like, he basically said that. And I was like, oh, haha, classic mm-hmm. misdirect or whatever. But I don't mind that this happened. I think it is this, I really like this concept of this, um, like, of his self-loathing, of him feeling not worthy enough, sort of overwhelming his healthy choice and him sort of falling back, you know, getting back on the needle that is Cersei. Like, I really do understand that. I just don't understand it necessarily as a bookend to this episode. Like, I just needed more time for that to, that rot to work its way into his brain, for him to go from battle here, like, a hero of Battle of Winterfell, to like trying this thing with Brianne and even if like this thing with Brianne doesn't sit right with him because he doesn't feel like this is where he belongs, he feels unworthy or whatever it is. Um, I needed a little more time. Not that Nicolai Costa didn't do a great job, he always does with his performance, but like do you know what I mean? I feel like if this were a yeah. three three episode arc of like his encounter with Brian to leaving Brianne that would make more sense to me, not because I'm like mad that he hurt Brienne and I'm like, you know, so disappointed. I'm just like, no, it makes sense that he would do this. I just needed more time for him to do it. in, You know?
2: Yeah. And I think that had there been more time, it also would have given Brienne, the the writers to give Brienne a more measured reaction to it, you know, like to have some debate about it or whatever, because like, again, I didn't, I didn't love that all of a sudden this character who has been completely the opposite is then, you know, in her nightgown pleading with the man not to leave, you know? Like that was just like, wait, really? Like I, I don't. Does that does that mean that she would have gone with him? I, I don't know because she has this obligation to Sansa. You know, I don't know. It's complicated. But if we'd had more time to sort of work that out, I would think I would have been more satisfied with it.
0: I don't. I don't know. I don't know that I dislike that only because like, I mean, it it just makes. Jamie Seymour villainous, but what Brienne... If it's out of character for Brienne, that's because she did a bunch of stuff that was out of character in those last few episodes, which is like make herself vulnerable right. to something that she's not allowed herself to be vulnerable to. And so the fact that that thing sort of like wounds her and cracks her open... You know, and I like say, i i I was reading some... Interesting thoughts from some of the to, to go way off back, uh, off tangent, but like come back again. Some of the women who, who worked on Captain Marvel and they were talking about this idea that, um, we need to allow our strong, our strong female characters to be like soft and vulnerable. And I know that you're not advocating, mm-hmm. you know, they not be. But when that happened for Brienne, yeah, the, the, the optics of like her begging her man not to leave are, a little bad but I don't know as a character beat I didn't hate it but I think you're right that I would have enjoyed it with more time
2: yeah that's all I mean I, I'm I, I think that like and Gwendolyn Christie is such a good actress and like I I, I was like in that scene like yeah. I was totally like wrapped by it but I was just sort of thinking about it after the fact that like but if we, again it kind of was Miss Andy dying if we had had like you said a build up to that moment yeah you know then it would have been like wow that really that really hits home but it was so quick so, so I don't know, I think, yeah.
0: Similarly, I need a little bit more time of cooking on the Sansa character because while I think Sophie Turner is doing an amazing job, Sansa swung to this like deeply sort of bitter and scheming place, uh, this student of Littlefinger place in this episode that made it challenging for me, because there was just some things that she did, like, I understand she wants independence for the North, I understand, like, she's protective of her brother and wants him to stay, I understand a bunch of other things, but like, uh, I don't know, she had that, like, weird needling dig at Jamie when, like, um, you know, Jamie just fought for Winterfell. <laughs> The battle, and, um, like, I, I just think, I think maybe an episode of not them all like getting along and singing kumbaya, but like an episode of like, we did it, we fought the battle, we are, you know, we are together in this, this is great, and then creeping in slower that like sense of an infight, you know what I mean? So, because like, I needed Sansa to not be mad at Daenerys at the literally the banquet after they all survived. The supernatural apocalypse. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just, mm-hmm. it felt, despite, uh, Sansa's, uh, distressfulness, it felt extreme, uh, you know, an extreme reaction from her. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's what we're all kind of, what we're both sort of circling around or, or getting directly at just, you know, over and over again is like, if only we had more time, you know, yeah. because they, you know, and I think that like, we're both writers. We both know what can come of rushing things. I mean, I certainly, you know, when I wrote my book that came out last year, like there's stuff I'm still not happy with, but like, I, cause I remember when I wrote it, it was under deadline. It was just like, you know, sometimes you have to make these kind of narrative compromises because something is due or needs doing. Um, but, you know, for, you know, we, we, we've all invested a lot of time in, in this show, years and hours and, you know, in, in various sort of configurations. And um, it would be nice if things played out with a bit more, uh, I guess nuance might be the word or sort of, or just, or justification maybe. Um But that said, even in talking about it with you this morning, like I'm like, yeah, there were some really good moments and, and, and regardless of what their characters were doing and whether or not every actor in this episode is great. Like mm-hmm. I think every performance is so sharp and mm-hmm. really emotionally well realized. And like, just, you know, I, I really like watching Sophie Turner and Maisie Williams now. Cause it's like, wow, you were such kids when the show started and now you're, you're <laughs> like two of the best performers yeah. on the show. And like, you know, um, I, I did like the Aria moment with, with you? Gendry, you know, yeah. I thought that was strong. And I think I like her and the hound trotting off together to, you know, well, we, I think we're pretty sure where they're going. Um, you know, I think that that's all, um, cause they both have scores to settle in King's Landing. And, you know, I think that's all well done and kind of bringing us back to earlier seasons. So, you know, I know. Uh, my, we're my, too- <laughs> my initial word might have been blark but like there is good stuff here i'm sorry if anyone's listening to this and feels like they're balloon deflated you know uh we're not trying to like ruin anyone enjoyment of it it's just like you know there were there was definitely some stuff to talk about
0: no and there's people that you know really like this episode and i'm not here to take that away from them but when i guess you know to circle back to that i need more time thing aria has a, ends a scene by insisting that john tell him who he is tell them who he is because they're family. She's like we're family, we're the last of the Starks, we're family. You have to tell us who you are or tell us what's going on or whatever. The very next scene is her hitting the road with the hound and saying she doesn't is not planning on coming back to Winterfell. Yeah. <laughs> and I need to figure out how that character progresses from that. Let's circle the wagons around the Starks to I gotta go. Like her, her. It, once again, it's like a Jamie thing. Like she's addicted to this kill list she has. She needs to go kill Cersei because that's what she wants to do. I understand it. I understand why. But like, there's something missing between those two scenes. And and Nikolaj coster said that too. When I interviewed him last summer, he was like, you know, listen. We are, we were used to having seasons, uh, to watch these things develop and now they happen within the span of an episode. And so I, as an actor, in order to like track those beats of my character, have to fill in all this stuff, like in my own head. Um, but I think for me as a, as a watcher, at least as like a close watcher, you know, you might not notice that the, that Ari, I think, the first time you go through the episode. But when you go, th- because you're just like, uh, oh, my God, what's happening? And it's like all going so fast and the performances are good and the visuals are dazzling. But if you go back through it again and you notice that that's where her scene left off and that's where the next scene started, you're like, what yeah. happened there? And what happened is the writers are just like, oh, you know, yada, 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 she hits the road. Or they shot a scene and felt like they could get away with not using it or whatever it is, you know. But I was just like, my... Nitpicky brain needs that scene, <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. Needs totally. needs like a a sense of aria goodbye. Needs, you know like I don't know it's the last mm-hmm. we'll see of them, but you know stuff like that. So anyway.
1: You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the Godfather of Artificial Intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Well, uh, I don't know if you noticed this episode, but... Uh, Another dragon died, and that means, of course, we have to have our dragon queen, Paula Fairfield, back (laughs) on the podcast to talk about the death of of Rhaegal and some other things in this huge episode. Paula, what does it feel like to kill off another one of your babies? I'm a monster!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's so hard. This episode was so... I had a very visceral response to the end, and and it's, I mean, it's just so hard to, um, to play those scenes through with the dragons because it is heartbreaking for everybody. I mean, it's it's you know, and I'm tasked with the job
0: of uh,
1: expressing the dragons' pain, which is never fun. So,
0: yeah, so but always challenging. Yeah, you know. what what um. You know, I know you went, already went through this kind of Viserion. Do you, are there measurable differences between, like, the death of Viserion? Viserion's death was so, uh, fiery. Uh, you okay. know, are there some other differences for the, for the death of Rhaegal here?
1: Well, this one, it, it, you know, I think for, I don't know how people felt, but, like, I remember when I first saw the scene, you know, I mean, here is, you know, poor Rhaegal. he gets through, the crazy craziness of Winterfell and, you know, and there he is with his, with his wing that's all tattered and, you know, trying to figure out if he can fly and, you know, kind of see what's going on. And for me, I remember watching this and this just came out of nowhere. And I wanted to express both pain and surprise kind of in those screeches, those first initial screeches of his. And then as the visual effects came in, just see kind of the concept of him basically choking on his own blood as he flies by. It was just like, oh my God. And and also that he is still suffering as he enters the water. You know, it's like, it's a really uh, painful death. And I, you know, I've talked about this a little bit before, um, and I actually used some of these sounds a little tiny bit in what I call the shimmy scene <laughs> in Winterfell when you know, Drogon's trying to shake off all the, the whites and they're, you know, hurting him. And you really hear him being vulnerable and in pain in that scene really for the first time since the plaza scene, right? You know? Yeah. and I tried to find things that were big now, but had that kind of, um, pain in them, the mm-hmm. expressive pain. And <clears throat> I went to, um, uh, a year ago, last December, I went down to the White Oak Conservatory in Florida, just outside Jacksonville and Yulee, and they are an amazing place that have um, this, um, and for anyone who's interested, you can go. They have beautiful safari trips, so you can see these animals, but their specialty is endangered, critically endangered, and extinct in the wild species, and it is extraordinary to be there it is extraordinarily humbling to be in the presence of these animals and they very graciously allowed me to go there and and, uh, record uh some of these beautiful creatures and i recorded um, a number of rhinos they have white indian and black rhinos there and um, they all make slightly different sounds and those sounds are in some of the big chest belly moves and stuff when they're flying and different things, they, they come and go. But in this one, one of the other creatures, I mean, among many that I recorded when I was there and one of the other creatures that was actually absolutely magnificent is they have these very huge um, Mississippi sandhill cranes that are, oh. I mean, they're enormous and they gigantic there are three, two big ones and a smaller one, these huge, horrid screeches as he gets hit. The surprise and pain simultaneously of that are expressed by the vocalizations of these uh, cranes. And, yeah, I love the metaphor of this. I mean, here is a dying mythical creature um uh, whose pain is being vocalized by species who are dying.
0: Wow. You know, yeah, in yeah. this
1: world. And so it was something that has become really interesting to me because, you know, it's like the voices are disappearing from our world and they are crying out to us. And so in some ways, this scene for me was very powerful. Um, and I've used, um, I can't talk yet because there's things coming up, but I've used a couple of other, Uh, creatures coming up that are also, um, you know, in jeopardy and for very specific reasons. And it is my absolute honor to do this. Beautiful, uh, my job when I get to listen to these beautiful voices and find a place for them, you know, I I kind of listen to them and what is the initial reaction and their call out, call out, the call out of these cranes. When I first heard them, there's something so haunting about their cries, you know, magnificent, majestic, but haunting and painful almost. And yeah. so when I saw this scene, it was one of the first things I thought of actually for it and went back to see if I could make it a match because I felt like, oh, wow, you know. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's become this kind of interesting thing that I've been doing and I love it um, because it does help us bring awareness and there's a metaphor here that is so powerful, um, these gorgeous voices that are disappearing that are coming together to create the, the the voices of mystical beings that are, you know, we see dying or, you know, that don't exist, you know, and that we love. And so maybe, you know, it will inspire people to listen to their voices more. I don't know.
0: But- I love that. And I know I mean, this came right off the back of this other huge episode that you had to do because you not only do the dragon sounds, you do a lot of the White Walker stuff. And so the Battle of Winterfell, yep. you've got... Yep three dragons, a whole army oh. of the undead, the night king, all of yeah. that. Um yeah. what was the hardest thing for you to crack about that episode?
1: You know, I think the thing that we all struggled the most with. I mean, there were many things that were crazy. I mean, I remember I think we talked at the end of last season and I was said that, you know, in the in the design of the blue fire I was trying to decide it, design it with like my worst fear, which is a battle between an icy dragon and a regular dragon. And goddamn, if they didn't put all three of them in there! <laughs> and I was like, no. When I first saw it, I was horrified. I mean, I was horrified for obvious reasons, like as you all were as you watched. But I was also horrified, was like no way i have to do this like i i couldn't speak for like hours after i saw because i saw a rough cut of the episode in the last spring and because i was visiting the set and miguel was working on it and tim porter and and they pulled me aside said hey can you take a look at this the hardest thing for us i think everybody that we all struggled with was the approach Mm. of the army and the revealing of it and the pacing of that and how that unfolded. And we had many, many things on the table. I, you know, I had talked about a lot of different ideas with the guys and then had, you know, had the summer, it haunted me. Oh, my dreams and nightmares <laughs> because <laughs> like, how, how do I do this? You know, yeah. I'm glad because it rolled around in my brain for a long time. When it arrived, again, had a panic attack and then, but I had kind of been thinking about it. And so I gave lots of options, different kinds of things we had talked about. Um, you know, the concept of a collective sound, you know, it's it's tricky because we had rules set up, you know, they only kind of make sound when they attack or otherwise they're very silent. And of course they rattle their bony, um, not all of them, but some of them. And uh, then they shriek when they die. And it's like, how do you create this, sort of feeling of them from a distance also you know millions of them
0: yeah. i mean millions
1: of them like the eternal supply of cockroaches you know it's right. like it's horrific
0: wrestling, you know, and it's wrestling in the darkness yeah
1: wrestling in the darkness what <laughs> is that and, you know a lot of people have talked about battle strategy but it's like who the hell would know? I mean, they didn't even know how many there were. And how could you even come up with a battle plan for that? You know, it's like nobody. I mean, this was an endless, basically an endless supply of right. them. Yeah. And how do you make that feel like that? What is the force that, you know, how do we make that presence feel and the creeping dread of it? And then the overwhelming sense of being swallowed by this tsunami of lights, you know, it's, it's crazy. So I think that was probably, I know we struggled a lot with it sonically. I think everybody did structurally to try to figure out how to create this, um, you know, how to create this, this, how to structure it, you know? And it, it took a lot of different twists and turns as we formulated it. We all, kind of considered many many different angles and you know from my point of view I supplied lots of different kinds of layers of things for them to play with because music also was a huge factor in there right. to music or not to music <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah oh yeah no that and that was like even on the table too at at, at one point to music or not to music To all, to completely music, partially like all that stuff, and so for me, I had to really kind of think through. I knew it was going to be a tough one, and uh, um, I had to kind of think it through and provide um, the stage and 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 you know those guys with every like all different kinds of options so they could play with them and shape them and and um, you know in in however way they wish because also. When I put that together, I had very little visual effects at the time. I had to get that out of the way because, of course, what else I had to do with, which was the dragons and the weather, by the way, which was something unexpected, but fabulous. I had so much fun with the weather. Um, But the weather played a huge mark because the point of the weather was that the Night King was trying to confuse and keep the dragons from seeing what was going on and confuse everybody. Yeah. you know, but the weather itself as a sonic texture was fantastic and allowed us to kind of shift from land to air in these kind of beautiful ways. And, you know, and it all made sense because we had established all this stuff with, you know, the White Walkers from, you know, especially, um, I mean, in, in a number of places, but especially Hardhome, we saw their command of the forces of nature. So it, it worked really well with that. Thanks. And it was just became this other kind of entity we had to play with. So, um, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it was, but I was, you know, it's like after all these years and stuff, I was ready and I felt good that I had planned ahead for this year for the, for the icy dragon, you know, for Syrian, because, um, you know, those are the kinds of things that can really, back you into corners, you know, and, uh, but, you know, I think it worked out pretty
0: good. Oh, no, it was great. And it's funny because when the episode's happening, I had a lot of people ask me, say, like, wait. Can the Night King control the weather? And like, because you had had that long conversation with me on the previous episode of the podcast about the sounds, the sort of earth cracking sounds you make in, in his yeah. control of the weather. I was like, yes, definitely. I know he does because Paulo well, told like me. Their
1: la- it's like their language. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. I
0: mean, you know, we, cause we talked about the idea
1: that they don't speak their above language and they right. control the forces of nature. People go back to hard home. you see the arrival is a now. Yeah. By this weather thing which was meant to intimidate and announce the arrival of, of the king.
0: What a, what, a good, so, what a good tool to have. Yeah. Don't you wish you could bring a storm when you arrive on the scene somewhere, Paula? No, um, I do occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> And then what about this sound, (laughs) this sound for the death of the Night King, which I think has to be, you know, a bit bigger than your standard White Walker shatter sound. Like, what do you do to make that make sure, you know, and I know that there's a lot of score, Ramin scores in there. There's a lot of silence in there, too. But how do you make sure that sort of icy shatter has the weight that you want it to?
1: Well, it has, if you listen really closely, it has these like releases of this. I kind of see it as kind of masculine energy in a way. I don't know. It's probably for, but you can hear it in there. There's a a deep, a depth of it where they were perhaps once men, you know what I mean? But there's a really, but it's like an ancient sound kind of feel. Mm -hmm. So I use that a little bit to kind of give it some extra Balls. (laughs) Balls. <laughs> but, you know, some extra, um, some extra uh, gra- gravitas as <laughs> they, as they dismantled and the, um, kind of deanimation began for, uh, all of the whites, you know, as, as they were, as they died, so did everybody, you know, the, the kind of, um, the connection, you know, that kind of yeah. connection that kept them alive but through that energy that, 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 from the, from the Night King kind of went out and, uh, and everybody. Yeah.
0: You know, it, um, it ended. It ended. It ended. Um, did you ever consider having the actor Vladimir Furchik, like come in and do any of that uh, masculine release of sound or was that just, no, we got this. No, I mean, we, you know, again, it's not, it's
1: sort of a more of a poetic thing. And I think it's, um, you yeah. know, I have, kind of Tibetan stuff, and, and some of it is slightly animalistic. I mean, it's a bunch of stuff together that is kind of just meant to be this thing uh, that just kind of pops and and, uh, and and kind of is embedded deeply in the glass. But, no, I mean, I've never met him. I, I, I've read some stuff with him. He sounds very awesome. And, uh, no, we didn't do that. But, you know, the kind of essence of it is there. That, um, and I love the imagery of them as they were shattering. It was quite, you know, yeah. Very, uh, you know, if we want to kind of draw parallels to what's happening in our world, it's a very interesting, uh, metaphor.
0: <laughs> okay. So speaking of real world parallels, um, I, you know, I, I just want to preface this by saying I have your permission to ask you about this. So we're going to talk about this, which is that you put in all this work. You, you are haunted for an entire summer. You work your ass off for Battle of the Winterfell and then. There's online criticism or real world criticism or whatever that is both like some some of it's thoughtful. A lot of it is like silly and flippant, which is probably even more frustrating. And then so when I talked to you a little bit immediately after the episode, you were frustrated by that. And then you had this like Zen breakthrough about the feedback and the tension and the heightened conversation on Game of Thrones the final season. I was wondering if you could share with the class or unified theory <laughs> about reactions oh, to Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's frustr.
1: you know, it was frustrating initially, because, yeah, I mean, we all kind of, you know, gave blood, sweat, and tears on this, and it was, you know, you want everybody to be, you know, to love it, but of course that's not, that's very unrealistic, and, and you know, there's nothing like, I think initially I said to you, there's nothing wrong with critic- constructive criticism, but when it gets super harsh, It's like very jabby and it felt like it, 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 you know, it it didn't feel good initially. But then I sort of started to really think about it and I watched the ebb and flow of emotions this past week. How people would, you know, had an immediate visceral response to it. And, you know, many, it had resulted in many people yelling at it for various reasons. Oh, it's too dark. It's to this. It's to that. You don't like this. We don't like that. You know, whatever. To uh, you know, I watched it again, and now I feel this and then you know, you could watch people's emotions kind of shifting and changing, you know. And I, I I found it fascinating, and I started to really think about the fact that you know our world is horrible right now. It's 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 really horrible, and it's it's. It's really, I think we all feel a sense of being slightly out of control. We can't control what's going on. There are bad things happening around us. You know, everybody seems to be fighting with each other about politics and stuff, whether here or in Britain or wherever, you know, it's just, it's, it's awful. Yeah. And, you know, one, one of the things that's really astonishing that I remember we talked about was like when, when, it's just like sometimes when we're fighting about stuff and then we shift our focus to something different, alliances can change completely. And, you know, one thing I noticed is that you see people from opposite political spectrums who were 10 minutes ago fighting on a political thread somewhere else, calling each other horrible names, aligning in the, aligning in the houses that they... Identify with and talking and arguing to in in completely different ways. Yeah, and yelling and screaming at the show. And I started to think about you know, Game of Thrones is a big show and it's eliciting big emotional responses. This is a place and time also. The show is wonderful. It's not without you know. It's 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 not perfection. It's not without its flaws, and we will all learn from this too. But the other thing that it does, it provides this forum that's like almost like a pressure release valve for all the shitty things that we're living in right now. And we can yell and scream at it, and we can get mad at things, and we can, you know, you know, yell about the injustice of a dragon dying, and it beats the hell out of some poor person somewhere who can't deal with their stuff, either harming themselves or harming other people because of this pent-up anxiety that we're all feeling. And so I started to think, you know, maybe it's not such a bad thing for these weeks. We join together and yell and scream at this thing and feel all the feels and emote stuff and see parallels in our own world and, and can kind of look at a different perspective. And, you know, can even can even yell and scream about whether Arya should have had sex or not you know you know it's like it doesn't matter in the end nobody's getting hurt as long as we understand those rules yeah. and as soon as i started to understand that i'm like i don't feel frustrated anymore i i'm like bring it on people like just vent your shit enjoy the hell out of it do all your stuff say all your words release all that do it you know if that's what we if that's what this show is doing for everybody right now then I'm, I'm proud to be part of it because it, yeah, the world is shitty right now, and we can hold each other in this Game of Thrones universe and maybe feel like not quite so much anxiety when we step outside our front door. You know, I don't know.
0: I but love that. It, it
1: did, yeah. It occurred to me, though, and it's kind of interesting, even just watching conversations on Twitter and stuff. I mean, if you think about it that way and how we can actually stand shoulder to shoulder with people who we said we couldn't even speak to because they allied politically differently than us. And it happens all the time. You know, I remember when Prince died and there were race riots happening and suddenly we all stopped for a moment and stood side by side and sang his songs together and loved his music and reminded ourselves of that. And everybody went back to fighting, but you know what? It was
0: a a temporary reprieve. (laughs) It was a moment
1: when we actually stood side by side and enjoyed that love that he all sent to us together. Yeah, we can do it. It's amazing. We actually are capable. You know.
0: Yeah, and so speaking of those those real world parallels, I know you had some thoughts on um, you know the very end of the episode. We've got Cersei and Masande and Daenerys in this sort of three-way standoff situation. I was just, I'm curious to know your thoughts on, you've been such an advocate for women in power in the show. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on how that's playing out at the end of this particular episode.
1: Well, I mean, for many reasons, that end scene hurt me so hard and I had a really hard time watching it. I mean, I had a hard time going back to it from the moment I saw it. And, um, you know, I mean one one of the things I love Sunday, and I love I always I've said this to you, I always wanted to see more of her relationship with Danny, this woman who is the only person that Danny trusted, who is her confidant, who as you've pointed out, may or may not have helped her with her hair. And, you know, all that stuff, you know, and so that bothered me. Um, the race thing that you've pointed out also has been an issue, but it's not something that can be corrected now. But yes, I mean that is something that I agree with. But the the what the thing that like grabbed me by the throat most was we rarely see women in power to this extent, and to see I think to see woman on woman cruelty, uh, let, let alone abuse of power, but cruelty is something we rarely see. If we had seen a, a, a man do it to a woman, which we have many times, or A woman do it to a man, which we have seen a couple of times, even in the show, that goes from woman to woman to piss off yet a third woman, all of whom are in power. And this triad, I mean, we never see this. And it is a not so gentle reminder of the power dynamics that can happen between women. I mean, we have not, and every woman knows this, has been in situations where other women have not been supportive and in fact have been undermining. And it can be very cruel. It's a very cruel reality when it happens, especially when you have hopes that, that we're better than that, we're going to handle things better, and suddenly things go south. And partially because there are so few positions of power for women, that when there is one, the competition in the past has been fierce and we're like a bunch of rabid dogs, like killing each other for the opportunity and it becomes horrible rather than lifting each other up and supporting one another and changing things slowly that way. And I think, you know, I do see shifts going on in the world right now since we are all starting to tell our stories, but that scene was a reminder of just how deep and horrible it can be when women can be cruel because we can be the cruelest of them all. You know, it's you know, there's sort of a deep emotional thing that comes into play that can just twist the knife in a way that no sword can and we all know that. And I think that is that is a a reality for me as I watch that scene that just just the, the utter cold bloodedness of it it was just shocking and it's shocking when it happens in the real world. And it's a cautionary tale of women in power and acclaiming power. We must be better than that. We must help each other. We must not do that, that thing that we have done in the past, you know? Um, and uh, anyway, it was just a thing that hit me very hard. Like I said, it was my absolute visceral response to the scene. Yeah.
0: yeah. I think, I think you it's, know. I think it's huge. I think that I know that I had, Maybe, maybe the strongest reaction to that than any other thing I've seen on Game of Thrones this season. And there's been so much happening yep. this season. Yeah, and, I, I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. Absolutely. And Absolutely. It's funny because, you know, there were all these complaints last week of like, oh, none of people died at the Battle of Winterfell. Um, and then it's like, it's not volume. It's, it's sort of its execution, right? It's, it's, a uh, it's a significance. Yeah. And that Misande death, like, it does mean more to me than, um even Jorah, who's like a character i love so much just because of all yeah. the complex things and that the the show the episode has sort of space for it and i have my um issues with it and then i have my emotional yep. investment in it and it's all very complicated yep. which is sort of like you know thrones but that's what i think at that's its what most what powerful yeah it makes
1: you feel uncomfortable and look at things in ways that you may not wish to look, but you must. And, you know, I also have always seen Miss Sunday. I mean, um, you know, she's such a gorgeous beacon of light. And in some ways is the thing that keeps the the, the cap on Danny's, you know, like Danny's dragon fire. And, and now yeah. the cap is gone. And what happens? You know, it's like so, it, it, you know, and she always has been that beacon, even though. Her role to me, I always, always, always had wished it for it to be larger, that we would know her more, that we, but I also know that it's also very different from the books. And so I get it, but I, it, it is this, you know, beautiful relationship in a way that's always kind of been on the periphery, um, since you know, since the beginning, really, you know? Yeah. So, yeah,
0: No, I agree with you. I yeah. wish, I wish there had been more space to pull the Daenerys Missandei stuff into the middle, especially given Sandy is like, yeah. her only female friend. Um, And I know, yeah. I know that they're doing like this thing where they're stripping away her, basically her support, all of Daenerys' support system and Missandei is a huge part of that. But you're right. A lot of that yeah. played off screen. Like we know she's important because she's just been there. So that yeah. alone makes her important, but I would in an ideal world when Thrones episodes are, you know, hundreds of hours long, <laughs> I would have loved to have yeah. seen that Daenerys and Sandy stuff. Oh yeah, more. yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. No, yeah. it would have been wonderful because any time we did see something about her and her relationship, you know, this budding relationship with Grey Worm and stuff. I mean, always I love those scenes the best. I just thought it they were so sweet, those two. Their hearts are so so beautiful and it was so wonderful that they found each other and there's just this tenderness and the way she played the scene was so beautiful. You know, I don't know. I, she was just such a great character and I, I, um, I'm, I'll miss her.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't have to go. I thank you so much for this. I congratulate you on surviving the battle of Winterfell, uh, your summer of Likewise. hell. <laughs> <laughs> and I look yeah. forward to, uh, I'll have a ear out for those other, um, Endangered species, perhaps, uh, voices in the yeah. last episode. So, I'll be listening. Uh, Godspeed with you all. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it.
1: <laughs>
0: Just really quickly, before we go, uh, Richard, can you tell me sort of like what you're hoping for, uh, you know, in the next episode or the next two episodes, uh, that will make you feel like uh, Game of Thrones is landing on, on track to where you want it to be?
2: Well, I hope the show just kind of, you know, proves itself to be aware of the way that they've arranged things now, you know, and that it doesn't just become about Tyrion and John and Varys and other people, sort of other, you know, men I uh, like managing the these women problems you know maybe maybe there'll be some inversion of that maybe danny and cersei will align like i don't i don't fucking know that's not going to happen but like you know i just or, or yara will come and save the day or something like i just i hope that the show surprises me in a way that i think a lot of television and this show itself has like proven time and time again that i won't be surprised that way but like maybe it will um i just think that like proving some i don't know I, I, in, a, in a weird way, I feel like they're losing allegiance to Danny and I hope that that doesn't bear out.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I will just say that I, I hope that they do surprise us in the end and the things that we think we're seeing are not what we think we're seeing, but not in like a rug pull kind of way, but just sort of in a, in a narratively satisfying way. That's my hope for the end of Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. I kind of want it to be messy, but I want it to make logical sense. So, uh, you know, let us hope for that. And, um, for me to be less bothered by some of the green screen on the King's Landing set. All right. So that is it for our discussion of the last of the Starks, Richard until next week, where can people find you? Well unfortunately
2: they can find me in France. I'm going to be <laughs> away on a work assignment uh for the next couple of weeks so I won't be able to join you I don't think for the last two episodes which feels cruel that we've you know we've done all this build up but it's been fun and I'm glad people listen and we're going to have the great Katie Rich uh a pitch it pinch hit, I believe um so I hope everyone sticks with her.
0: I'm uh, so but stoked I'll still- I mean, I'll miss you, but also I'm excited that like our pinch hitter at Vanity Fair is Katie Rich. What a, what a great bench we have, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, exactly. We got a deep, deep bench. Um, you know, and she'll bring a new perspective to it, hopefully, which is great. Um, but I'll still be on Twitter and at VF.com. Uh, Joanna, where will you be until I can find you from the distant shores of France, uh, <laughs> next week?
0: Well, make sure to get your, to track your, your reactions to, so it can be represented here on the podcast. So we'll make sure that Richard's voice is great. somehow heard, even if it's filtered through my voice. Um, but everyone can find me on vanityfair.com. Follow me on Twitter at Joe This, as I know Richard will be doing eagerly from can. What, what better thing to do than follow my tweets? Um, or. <laughs> (laughs) Or you can hear me on a couple other Game of Thrones podcasts like Storm Spoilers and the Cast of Kings. And um, all right. Well, we will then, Richard and I will return with another show. But you will hear from me next week. The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture.
2: I am Fran Libuj, Um, who should be the mayor of New York.
1: We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink lover. room. All right, Asha, can you hear us?
2: I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me?
0: We can. We can.
2: All right, here we are. <laughs>